Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Elizabeth H. Blackburn, Ph.D., of the University of California, San Francisco, speaking at the Yale School of Medicine's Bicentennial Symposium, Biomedicine in the New Century, on April 28, 2011. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who is the Morris Herstein Professor of Biology and Physiology in the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics at the University of California, San Francisco. She became interested in the ends of chromosomes at a very early time during her career and is now a leader in the area of telomere and telomerase research. Dr. Blackburn discovered the molecular nature of telomeres and the ribonuclear protein enzyme telomerase. Blackburn and her research team continue to work in a number of model systems in human cells with the goal of understanding telomerase and telomere biology, including how telomeres are maintained and the consequences of telomere loss. Blackburn earned her BSc and MSc degrees from the University of Melbourne in Australia and her PhD from the University of Cambridge in England. And for the younger members of the audience, especially our postdocs, you might not know that Dr. Blackburn did her postdoctoral research here at Yale in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology, and she did this in the lab of Joseph Gall. Throughout her career, Blackburn has been honored by her peers as the recipient of many awards. She served as president of the American Society for Cell Biology, she was elected to the uh, National Academy of Sciences, and she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Royal Society of London, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And she's currently serving as president of the American Association for Cancer Research. Uh, she, it, she received the prestigious Albert, Albert Lasker Medical Research Award, and she is also the, no, the North American Laureate for the L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science. In 2009, Dr. Blackburn was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. We look forward to your talk. Thank you. It's a very great pleasure to be here and to take part in this wonderful symposium. And, uh, and it brings me pleasure to be back uh, at Yale. I periodically come back here and, and visit, but um, I was a postdoc over on Science Hill. But I used to go back and forth between Science Hill and the medical school because I had wonderful um, uh, scientific uh, collaborators and people I used to interact with, like Joan Stites and uh, Ellen Weiner and many others here in the medical school. So I have very, very fond memories of uh, Yale's medical school from that uh, very formative postdoctoral period, and which, which uh, as, as was mentioned, really got me onto the topic that has become kind of the interest and passion that remains in, in my life. And so what I'm going to do is to take you through a little bit of the, the journey, and which, as I said in my title, is going to be from basic science to uh, something I never dreamed I would be interested in, but now becoming more and more interested in, and that's questions of how this kind of science bears on um, issues of human health and disease in ways that I will talk about. 
So what I want to do is, first of all, give you again, get us all on the same page in terms of some, some basics of, of telomeres and their maintenance and um, where we got to where we are now, and then take you through a little bit of basic science story, because I'm going to make a point, and that is that the basic science really is crucial for understanding the kinds of processes that we've become interested in humans, and that is uh, processes that do relate to human health and disease. So first of all, telomeres are the ends of chromosomes. They cap the ends of chromosomes and were recognized by cytogenetic studies in the 1930s as being very important for capping off, protecting chromosome ends in ways that were very different from if a chromosome was broken, in which case such a break would be uh, subject to all sorts of instabilities uh, that could lead to genomic instabilities of various kinds. So as I said, we're going to go from basic science to human health and disease. So, so what was the basic science that brought me into this question of telomeres? Well, the molecular nature wasn't really known in the 1970s at all. But what was known was that there was a, a big outstanding mystery about DNA replication. So the DNA replication machinery had been understood by the work of Arthur Kornberg and others. And it was known how this machinery worked. And there was an inbuilt mystery, which was explicated nicely by Jim Watson and also by Olovnikov in the 70s. And that was that the DNA, a linear DNA, couldn't be completely replicated by the known DNA replication machinery. So this was a problem, right? Because every time a DNA replicated as cells continue to divide, it was predicted from the known machinery to get progressively shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter, clearly a non-sustainable situation. And Lobnikov even said, oh, maybe this could lead to observations that had been seen in cells and culture by, um, uh, by, by various groups, but you know, senescence had been seen in, in cultures. And so the Hayflick limit of this idea was something that Lovnikov thought, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe it could be related to telomeres. Prescient idea. And it turned out that, that that is very likely right. I mean, there's every evidence that that's right. Uh, but the uh, molecular nature of what was going on in telomeres just wasn't known. So I had the great good fortune, as was mentioned, to join Joe Gall's lab. And Joe was a master at finding good biological systems, basic science systems, to study fundamental questions. And what he'd found was that Tetrahymna thermophila, a little harmless, um, ciliated, single-celled protozoan that lives in pond scum, in fact, uh, that organism has very, very short chromosomes. Uh, a, a whole set of very short chromosomes. They happen to carry ribosomal RNA genes, but they have a, an abundance of these, and it gave us a molecular handle to pull out, uh, you know, pull out chromosomes and analyze them directly. And uh, for the younger ones in the audience, DNA cloning hadn't really been invented then. It was just starting. So you see, you know, you, you had to get chromosomes that you could get your hands on. And so this marvelous system provided those. And what we found was that there were simple repeated sequences at the ends of chromosomes, just simple repeats over and over and over again. So how did they get there? And to cut a long story short, what my graduate student, uh, Carol Grider, and I found subsequently at the University of California, Berkeley, when I moved to my own lab where, there, was that tetrahymena, and it turns out most other eukaryotes, had in it an enzyme that had the capability of elongating the DNA at the end of a chromosome. So I'm now showing you the very end has an overhanging single-stranded region. And it could add single triphosphates, GTP to TTP in this case, to the end and elongate the end of the chromosome, making the DNA longer. So here was something that could elongate DNA. And we had this problem, which is that DNA was predicted to be shortened. So could this be the solution? So the answer came by using tetrahymena again and using the observation that tetrahymena um, is actually an immortal 
organism. In other words, if you feed it, talk to it nicely, it will keep on multiplying just indefinitely, vegetatively. Doesn't need to go through sex or anything like that. Just keeps on multiplying. So here we had tetrahymena, and it had, you know, apparently enough telomerase because its telomeres were maintained at some length or other. Now we were very fortunate in finding in that telomerase enzyme that I showed you in this slide here, but didn't tell you that it has an RNA component, which is a very unusual kind of thing, because what it did was what David Baltimore's and Howard Temin's reverse transcriptase does, but this was an essential enzyme for cells, not from a retrovirus or a retroposon. What it does is it copies DNA from RNA, you know, breaking the central dogma of DNA RNA to protein. So this was an interesting little RNA. It actually has much more in it than this sequence here. And the RNA and the protein core are essential for the enzymatic action of telomerase. So we fortuitously came across uh, a mutation just in the RNA, a single point mutation in the RNA that we knew was the telomerase component. And when we introduced that uh, ablated the normal telomerase, we found that the telomeres progressively shortened, and after about 20 to 25 cell divisions, the cells ceased dividing. So we could really sort of strike at the heart of the viability of these cells by just making their telomerase not work, by changing a known component of telomerase. So basically, the, uh, the answer, which then has become very general for many, many uh, cells in, in, in most eukaryotes, was if you had an immortal cell type and you mutated telomerase such that you crippled its ability to add telomeric DNA enzymatically to the ends, now this became, quote, mortal with this sort of delay as the telomeres ran down. And that general idea underpins then generally the kinds of things that have been found in a whole lot of different settings. So we could conclude from that that in fact telomerase was maintaining telomeres. And uh, I'll just add parenthetically, we had to make up a name and people in my lab, you know, we all sort of came up with ideas for the name, but we came up with the word telomerase and I'm very proud to say it's in the Webster's Dictionary now and okay, it went in there a few years ago. So, so you know, I can die happy because I've added a word to the dictionary. So, <laughs> so anyway, so that's telomerase and it does, you know, the job in vivo that uh, we could see it doing from these initial in vitro activities. Now, why, why, does it, why does it matter to have this kind of telomeric structure? In essence, what you have at the ends of chromosomes, as I mentioned in the case of tetrahymena, and is very general throughout most eukaryotes, with a few fascinating exceptions, like Drosophila, for example, but by and large, that's a derived situation when it rarely does occur. Most organisms have this kind of thing at the end. Simple, repeated, quite often G-rich DNA sequence on one strand with overhanging single-stranded region that gets extended by telomerase. Now, what's the point of this region? Well, you know, partly it's sort of a buffer. You can shorten it down. Uh, and in humans, it's some few thousand bases long, depending on various circumstances that I'll go into much more uh, in the latter part of the talk. But the important point of this sequence is to provide a kind of molecular scaffold that provides high affinity binding sites for a whole suite of protective proteins. And the job of these proteins is to form this sort of very dynamic but protective sheath. And that is what makes the telomere cap, this combination of these proteins and that DNA. So without going through a lot of the um, details, over the years our lab and many other labs have learned a lot about the proteins and their dynamic regulatory properties 
And, and one of the things these do is to self-regulate the telomeres in this marvelously homeostatically sort of clever way, which is when the telomeres are long enough, this complex doesn't let telomerase act on it. And then when the telomeres get shorter, telomerase now starts to see this in cis structure as different and short enough that it then utilizes that uh, DNA in this shorter than usual telomere as a substrate and elongates it. So it's very, a lot of wonderful self-feedback self at the level of the individual telomeres themselves. And as you can imagine, this is under exquisite control and, and in yeast alone, over 350 gene products are known to regulate this uh, maintenance of this, you know, make it longer, shorter, change the length distributions and so forth, not just telomerase genes themselves. So it's very exquisitely regulated. Cells clearly um, think it's important to uh, protect their chromosome ends. Now, what happens then if you don't have telomerase? Well, I, I said what happens in, uh, in the case of, um, of tetrahymena, and, and as I said, this generalizes. And so what one finds in a lot of human cells is that telomerase is, is rather lower than is able to maintain chromosome ends. And so as these cells keep dividing, they are prone to this process here, okay? And this signal, which happens when a telomere gets somewhat shorter than uh, it should, still has repeats and chromosomal proteins, protective proteins, but when it's too short and cells are exquisitely uh, uh, responsive to this, it sends a signal and then the pathways are known and known kinases are involved and known DNA damage pathways and subpathways are involved in this, but it sends a signal to a, a cell which, if it's a normal cell, typically will tell the cell, don't divide anymore. And so the cell sits there in its senescent state, still metabolically alive, if it's a normal cell in most cases, but it um, causes this, uh, this senescence, right? And so the idea was uh, then, well, well, could this be, you know, rather like, you know, a candle burning down sort of thing, if this is the analogy with the candle now is the telomere end, you know, it sort of burns down like a fuse, you get to this point here. You see it at the cellular level, you know, could this be happening at the organismal level? And I'll return to that in the last part of most, most of my talk, but I'll, I'll first of all go through some basic science questions. Okay, so this kind of system has been studied in all sorts of organisms, and of course the um, budding yeast uh, system has been a marvelous system for all sorts of branches of fundamental uh, biology, molecular biological and genetic, uh, you know, um, uh, possibilities exist in this wonderful experimental system. And so um, yeast is a little bit like tetrahymena or, you know, like a stem cell. It's got large uh, replicative capability. It can keep on multiplying uh, as, as a population. And it has adequate telomerase. And so yeast has been studied a lot. So let me just tell you, uh, you know, the basics and then some interesting new unexpected things that we are finding in yeast which I think are very important as we keep in mind what might be going on in human cells. So if you put yeast cells onto a plate and you streak them out and you streak for single colonies and these nice robust white dots are just single colonies of yeast growing on um, a plate uh, and this telomeres are continually being maintained by telomerase action, so there's plenty of telomerase action. Now if you genetically ablate the telomerase, the telomeres start to progressively shorten, just as I showed you before, and it gets shorter and shorter, and then they get to a point where the cells will now no longer be able to grow their senescent cells. It's, a it's a basically a G2M arrest characteristic of serious DNA damage. 
And then a very low but real subpopulation of cells can arise. Population about frequency uh, about 10 to the minus 4 uh, per cell per um, generation and much higher than mutagenic frequency. But what happens is that these cells then can maintain their telomeres by patching them together by recombination. And Vicky Lundblad uh, first discovered this in the early 1990s, and we found it in a couple of different yeast species. And this kind of thing also happens uh, sometimes in certain settings in um, human cancer cells. I'll mention that later. But the point is that you know basically the vast majority of cells will go through senescence, and this thing rescues things, and then they can do pretty well after this, but you know it's only a relatively low frequency. So basically, you know, yeast cells do need their um, telomerase, but there is a survival uh, rescue that can happen at low frequencies. Okay, so this is well well studied, and so everybody thought all the action happened around here, right? So these cells appeared to be growing uh, well, but we had some clues that maybe maybe things might not be quite so normal at this early stage. So this is what I want to tell you that's new. So the idea was that nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened, and then suddenly, oh, senescence, all hell breaks loose, okay? But people hadn't looked, okay? Colonies are okay, but they don't really tell you much. And so we uh, collaborated very recently with a marvelous colleague in our department who's a physicist, Ha Li, and his colleague, Zhang Wei Ji, and what we did was utilized a great system they had for looking at yeast mother cells. Now, yeast, when they divide, divide by budding, and mother cells have this very interesting phenomenon, which is that their um, individual mother buds and forms a daughter, who then becomes a mother when she buds, right? But the individual mothers can only bud for a certain number of times. So, so how was studying this? And we thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to look and see what goes on with telomeres here? Because everyone said, oh, telomeres have nothing to do with this. So, but, but the tools hadn't been available. But how has this grace system, and I'm going to show you sort of a poor man's movie, you stick down the yeast cells either with streptavidin in a microfluidics chamber, and then you can look at individual ones, lots and lots of them under the microscope, follow them you know, by taking movies every you know, few minutes for a few days. So you mobilize the mother cell, streptavidin, or you can put a little post in the chamber down, stick her down, and then she buds, right? So poor man's movie. But then there's a hydrodynamic flow, because they flow liquid through the chamber, and they just wash away the buds, right? So she just keeps on budding, and you, you just see uh, all of this until she finally stops. Now, you can depict this data in the following way. So this will be a little unfamiliar, and I'll walk you through this. Each one of these upward bars is a mother cell, and each one of these white horizontal bars records the moment when she budded, right? And so we're going through time up here. This axis is time. And so you see, this is just a typical population of wild-type cells, and you put them down. Most mother cells are relatively young, and now here they are, bud, 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 and then they stop budding, right? And so what happens is that usually the last cycle is the very longest cycle. The rest tend to be rather even in length, although there's some unevenness occasionally as they get older. But by and large, they uh, just keep on budding, uh, and then they, they cease to bud. And that's called mother cell aging, and a lot of genetics has been done on what makes aging longer and shorter. But no one thought telomeres had anything to do with this. So, so here they are, bud, 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 et cetera. And now let's look at a cell, uh, and, then, and then this final stop. Okay, now we'll, let's look at a cell which, uh, in which we made a point mutation that simply catalytically inactivates telomerase. And I put them side by side, and you can right away see, you can kind of ignore the colors, but just have a look. So first of all, you see that there's much, much less. You know, they, they, they stop much earlier. And, and now we look at the young mothers, and we say, what about their budding cycles? So let's blow those two regions up. Here's the wild type, here's the bottom part, the bud, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And here's the, uh, for this first uh, 10 hours or so, here's the mutants 
which have this point mutation that simply inactivated their telomerase. And now, now, now ignore the colors. The colors were just, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Just look at the intervals. And I think what you can see is there's right away a lot of heterogeneity. You see a lot of much more prolonged cell cycles. But these are really young mothers. They've still got many divisions to go. And so we've been looking at this, uh, we're looking at the genetic properties of this, and what's going on is a kind of interesting surveillance. Cells are scrutinizing their telomere maintenance status, and they're saying, something wrong, there's something wrong, okay, I'll keep dividing, uh, something wrong, something wrong. Sometimes they go to a normal cell cycle, sometimes they have a longer one, shorter, longer, but they're really, really worrying all the point to the point where their telomeres run down and they just you know, really get a signal to cease dividing. So this is the, a real surprise here, and we're looking at the genetic dependencies of this and the subsets of the DNA damage response and signaling pathways involved and so forth. Okay, but I just wanted to make that point. This was, you know, it's not all over. You think you know it all, and then you realize that this is not all over. Now, the other interesting thing I want to mention, again, uh, in yeast, just to show you, you know, the basic science that you can do in these model systems, I think is really invaluable for telling you things that you, you know, didn't suspect and you really wouldn't be able to study easily in more complex organisms, but uh, you can then start thinking, well, how do those play out? Another thing that happens we found in the genome-wide response to deletion of telomerase. So what happens when you delete telomerase? Well, basically, um, if you look up here, uh, this, is the, this is two independent replicates of an experiment, two strains just to show that it's reproducible. So you only need to look at one. But basically what happens is the telomeres shown in the southern bot get progressively shorter, the cells go into senescence, and then, as I said, those cells come out, and now they quickly take over the population, and they grow robustly, and they have these very long telomeres, as you see by this longer thing, being maintained by recombination. Now, they shorten down, but the population is growing robustly, because they can always do enough recombination. Some, a few cells drop out, but they grow robustly with these much longer telomeres, but they don't have telomerase. And so what we see as we look at gene expression profiling, which we did some years ago in collaboration with Joe DeRisi at UCSF, was that you know, a few things happened earlier, and, and we're now looking much more, given those very new results that I just mentioned, that cells actually are scrutinizing the telomere maintenance states right from the get-go as the telomeres are shortening well before senescence. But at, at senescence, a lot of things happen. Okay, and we've profiled all these and showed that it, uh, they fall into couple of classes, and one is a classic DNA damage response, absolutely what you would expect because there's genomic havoc that happens as these telomeres get uncapped and all sorts of instabilities happen. And then these cells grow out. Now, they're growing robustly, but look at this. You can see sustained, very strong expression of a number of genes. And what were these genes? They were a very interesting class. It was a class that had been characterized at David Botstein and Pat Brown's lab, and it was what's called an environmental stress response. And you get this common signature of these genes being robustly turned on in this response to a whole variety of different environmental insults. So what we're doing is we're not insulting these cells externally, but inside, their telomeres are being maintained by this other mechanism, which apparently is allowing robust growth, that these are really hurting inside these cells. You know, they look stoic on the outside, but they're really in pain inside. And, and they're telling us this in a very strong, population-strong way. Something is wrong, okay. So 
cells that are supposed to have telomerase in them and can be maintained apparently robustly are still physiologically very distinct from those who are maintained by for what in this cell type has evolved to be a constitutively telomerase positive setting. Okay. So now, what about in humans? So now I'm going to switch to, to humans. But just, I wanted to sort of keep those things generally in mind because clearly we're going to have to understand a lot about what goes on in humans. And in humans, essentially, telomerase has two very different kinds of implications for cell maintenance depending upon the cellular context. And I'll divide them into cancer-promoting and uh, normal cell uh, replenishment situations. So, uh, as I mentioned, in many normal cells, there's apparently insufficient telomerase, particularly the fully differentiated cell types, that they are subject to going through into, uh, you know, senescence. And so the question had been, well, you know, what was, what was the consequence of this for the organism? You could see cells had low telomerase, you could see in culture the telomeres would run down. But nobody, for quite a while, but now there's much more information, for quite a while, it actually was not clear how this would actually play out in humans. Because remember, in humans, there are various cell types. And essentially what's known is, is uh, summarized briefly here, and that is that in normal human cells, of the cells that are expected to have long replicative lifespans, like germ cells, like certain stem cells, and, the, and stem cell lineages and so on, you would expect telomerase, and indeed you do find it to be quite you know, robust and obviously in germ cell lineages. Okay, now it was thought by initial studies to be just absent from uh, fully differentiated cells of many different kinds. Again, people had not looked enough, and if you look carefully and quantitatively, you can clearly see that telomerase is actually present in a variety of cells previously thought to be sort of telomerase negative. You know, such as cells that have been particularly useful for studies in humans, and that is cells of the peripheral uh, uh, immune system, you know, white blood cells, right? These are cells you can get from the body from all sorts of, you know, different cohorts of people, and you can ask questions about those, and it turns out that they're giving a very useful window. But these are cells that are, we always check this out carefully, they're resting uh, cells, and mostly lymphocytes, but you can look at other types like granulocytes. Now, so that's in the normal cells. Now, in this very different setting of cancer cells, uh, telomerase very typically is, is actually, by the time cancers have advanced to malignancy or progressed far, telomerase gets very, very high. And so in the setting of cancer cells, and I'm really going to just pass over the cancer cell setting very briefly here, but I just need to put everything in context here. The cancer cell situation is such that in very, you know, a typically advanced or malignant cancers, telomerase it promotes cancer. And, and so what happens, uh, and this is a, an oversimplified version, the normal situation here, it goes on, but if you have in carcinogenesis some sort of growth dysregulation, telomeres are shortening too much, and then somehow telomerase very frequently gets upregulated, and then telomeres get maintained. Now, I've collapsed a lot of research from a lot of labs into this oversimplification here, but the bottom line is that the end result is what I just said. You typically see in the commonest human cancers, particularly the epithelially derived ones, uh, you know, robust telomerase activity. There are some exceptions, and interestingly, they're, they're, they're interesting classes. They're mesenchymally derived cancers, somewhat rare, but important cancers, and they use the equivalent of that recombination-based 
telomerase-negative pathway that I showed you rescues yeast cells. So there is another pathway. But human cancers, if, you know, given the preference, so to speak, uh, they really, really like to upregulate their telomerase. And so uh, a lot of work has gone into trying to understand what that does. And of course, it, it does what you might expect. It allows these cells to have a prolonged replicative capability, which, as you, you can imagine, is, is important for the advancement of the cancer. Um, uh, but uh, in addition, it's seeming, and I just don't have time to talk about this, but it's seeming that telomerase itself may be also active in other regulation of signaling of pathways that are important to cancer cells, and interestingly enough, pathways that are important for stemness of, of cells. So there's very interesting biology starting to come up above the surface uh, about telomerase, in addition to its well-known day job of maintaining telomeres by adding DNA to the ends. But the telomerase core protein is a big, highly conserved protein with much more than a reverse transcriptase domain in it, and so there's going to be interesting emerging stories there. That's really all I have to say about the telomere and telomerase situation in cancer cells, but just to, you know, it's, it's not all over by any means. And so uh, now the question is, what about in normal cells? And so that's what I'm going to devote the rest of this talk to discussing. So in normal cells, um, telomerase is actually good news. And so now we're talking about cells that have all their checkpoints intact and respond properly to signals from, you know, tissues and signals around them, norm, normal cells. So what's the situation there? Well, in normal cells, as I said, there seems to be not a lot of telomerase, and is that important for life processes? So now, as I said, telomerase is quantifiable in normal cells. I'd like to just show you a specific example of, of some of the data for this, uh, because just, just to sort of make the point that the very low telomerase you find doesn't look random. It looks pretty, uh, pretty regulated. And so what I've shown you is pretty complicated here, but what this is is a QQ plot, and we're plotting uh, the levels of telomerase in resting peripheral lymphocytes, and we've sorted them from the blood, and there's two different cohorts here, and I'll tell you what these cohorts of people are. But the point is that I'm going to make is that the patterns of different uh, samples are very similar across these two different cohorts. What I've done is I plotted, this is the white line here, is in the CD4 cells, CD4 positive cells, I've just plotted them against each other in this QQ plot here. And then I've plotted that against uh, CD8, 20, CD28 plus and CD28 minus, which is the yellow here, uh, respective magenta and the yellow here. And then the uh, aqua is the B cells. Now, this cohort is a study I'll tell you more about, but these are basically um, uh, postmenopausal women and, uh, and, actually, and, and their controls who are either caregiving of a dementia patient who's a family member or not, a long-term stressor situation. And uh, you see the pattern here when you just look at the sample here. This is a very, very different cohort here. And essentially, these are people, they are HIV positive, but they haven't got AIDS. They're being watched like hawks at San Francisco General and being monitored extremely carefully, but they hadn't gone onto any medication yet, but they were being watched carefully. The point is that the patterns are really, really similar in terms of these relationships of these cells. And in fact, that's rather similar for telomere lengths. But interestingly, in an individual, it seems as if the regulation sort of, of, of these different cell types kind of goes up and down as a group uh, from individual person to individual person. And that's lucky because, in fact, a lot of what is being done in such studies as these large cohort studies that look at telomere lengths is to do what you can do 
in a sort of practical way with, with samples, which is to get blood where you essentially look at populations of blood cells. So even though we know blood cells sort into subclasses, you can sort of forget for the moment, uh, in part at least, you know, what, what I just said about these differentials uh, between subtypes, because what seems to happen is as a group, we see telomere lengths being regulated in an individual person rather systemically uh, you know, together, and even buccal cells and blood cells have rather similar telomere length distributions within individuals compared with between. Okay, so in these clinical studies that I'll uh, first of all give you a very brief overview of, what, what is looked at typically is just white blood cell telomere lengths, okay, you know, either peripheral blood mononuclear cells, you know, or leukocyte fractions, you know, something like that, what you get is this relationship so now let's look at the overall pattern here, because this, I think, has become really quite thought-provoking. And that is major common diseases, particularly those that get uh, higher and higher in frequency with aging, and including cancers, they've been linked to shorter telomeres in normal cells, and most studies, as I said, are using um, immune system cells. Now, just to give you the sampling here, what we see is a variety of different and rather common diseases or situations uh, that are risk factors uh, of uh, diseases that particularly are diseases of aging, but which of course are, are very important in their quantitative overall impact. And this is truly an incomplete listing here, but I just want to give you the idea that this kind of pattern is just showing up over and over again in cohort after cohort in very different sorts of studies and so on. So it's a pattern we simply cannot afford to ignore. And basically, the telomere shortness goes up with risk of these very common diseases. Okay, here's one example, just a, a relatively recent one. Uh, you know, this was looking at a variety of cancers in about 900 people, and basically uh, the shortness then predicted cancer incidence and also mortality in this group. So, you know, here's this quantitative relationship here. And so, just, just let me put this in perspective. So here's, here's, just let's think about the United States alone and cancer, which is only one of those diseases where one sees, as I said, this quantitative uh, uh, relationship. But just to give you specifics, so in cancer, for example, very frequent in, in, in the population, you know, look at the numbers of cases, one and a half million just in 2010, you know, over half a million deaths in 2010, and, uh, the uh, age distribution of it is very striking because it's obviously uh, age-related. Most cases are diagnosed after age 60. And so that number is very important given what's happening demographically. Again, I'm just showing in the US, but here's 2000, here's 2030, fraction of people over 65. You know, do the math. It's very clear that as the demographics are showing more and more aging, these diseases of aging are going to become more and more of a large impact. So, what might be going on in humans? So I just want to sort of step back and say, well, what might be the nuances here? You know, we, we're, as I've said, there's a bit of telomerase in normal cells that we're looking at just by sampling the convenience of blood cells. We know there are stem cells that have more telomerase. We know that seems to be fairly systemic regulation of telomerase and telomere lengths. So what are the sort of situations you might expect? Well, if we had a stem cell population, we would expect, and germ cell population, we do expect, you know, telomere maintenance is, uh, is pretty well maintained. There'll be some nuances, but basically, you know, 
the telomere uh, situation is maintained so that if addition by telomerase primarily and shortening, which is this incomplete replication, and also it's been found by, uh, by a number of groups, some nucleases munching away at the ends, they more or less imbalance over time, right? Now, the balance can go the other way, as Richard Hodes showed several years ago in, um, in, in uh, B cells in the germinal centers. And in fact, telomerase is upregulated in those cells as they go through this, uh, go through the germinal centers. And, and you see telomeres actually growing, you know, in adults. So it's not a rule that telomeres always have to get shorter. And I'll get more back to that point. Um, and then, but, but as I say, the other way around, if the balance is tipped in whoops, I forgot to balance it down, whoop, the other way down, <laughs> then in fact telomeres will be a little bit shorter. Uh, you know, eventually if you don't have enough telomerase and eventually you get senescence, and then if the balance is tipped even further down, then in other words, you know, you have even less telomerase, perhaps no telomerase, then, you know, correspondingly, all other things being equal, which of course they won't always be, but just in the simple-minded way, uh, then of course we get to senescence sooner. So, as I mentioned, this is a highly, highly regulated system. So, in principle, there's two kinds of things that can regulate it, genetic and non-genetic. So, let's turn first to genetics, because it's more simple to understand, and we know what causality is. And so, what do we know, um, as, as Huda talked about so beautifully in the case of Rett syndrome, when you have mutations, you can map them, and you really know where you are, and you can make mouse models, and you can know about causality. So there's a lot known now, by both in mouse model systems and also in humans who are afflicted with a variety of different sporadic occurrences in which telomerase genes get mutated. And these are often, again similar to what Huda described for Rett syndrome, often haploinsufficiencies. So we know it's just 50% gene dosage in these cases. And others cause uh, insufficiencies where you know the cause is that the telomerase is down, and, and only down by 50% gene dosage is enough to give you, first of all, you can see telomeres are quantitatively you know, much down compared with, say, unaffected siblings of these families, of which there are several, you know, dozens known around the world now, right? But you see in all cases, and in the mouse models, reduced ability of cells to replenish over the long term. And indeed, that has a very clear disease impact. So we know the genetic pathway here. And the diseases are a very interesting group. Uh, uh, prominent among them are immune system failures. You see pulmonary fibrosis, you see liver cirrhosis, you see highly increased frequencies of certain cancers. And now, very recently, it's showing up, clearly diabetes is in there too. It's really a very interesting group, and you'll see some interesting overlaps with what I just showed you in terms of telomere shortness in common populations. But this is severe and this is rare. So we have a causality, you know, the luck of the draw, you know, who you chose for your parents or the unfortunate sporadic mutations, you know, mutations occur, right? And that leads to shorter telomeres and that leads to the disease impacts. So that's really clear causality. We're on firm ground here. So now, what about the general situation? Now, work is being done in various settings. And as I told you before, that from that table, you know, we know telomere shortness is associated with disease. But is it a, bio, a, you know, a byproduct? Is it a, a biomarker? Is it irrelevant? So what do we know? Well, you can look at um, uh, uh, you know, SNPs in the populations. This just picks out one example where a couple of populations are looked at. And, and the bottom line is you can see telomerase, in this case telomerase, RNA gene component variants, a couple of different cohorts. You can see some relationships. You know, they're not huge, but you can see, yes, 
one of the SNPs is associated with somewhat shorter telomeres than in people who have you know, the other SNP. So you see such things, but the effect size is not huge. And in this case, there was certainly no ability to relate that particularly to um, disease incidence or, or frequencies or anything. But you know, there are some effects of common SNPs, so there's something there. Um, a nice example of this being dissected was recently published by Guertau, and what they looked at was, was they just did by genome-wide association studies now, not looking for telomerase mutation, just genome-wide associations. They, they looked for common SNPs just, you know, from the population at random associated with telomere shortness. And then they uh, looked in case control studies at disease, in this case it was certain cancers, and what they found was that this risk of the, with this certain SNP a particular one that they look at, they found it was uh, having an impact. It was clearly increasing cat bladder cancer in this particular case. It, this SNP was clearly associated with bladder cancer, and part of the effect was mediated through telomere shortness, which you could show by mediation analysis, but not all the effect. So it's a mixture. So the question is going to be, you know, in general, what, how will this play out? When you see telomere shortness that's genetically associated with common SNPs, how much of it will play out through the telomere shortness? In this case, uh, it was clearly a, a portion of the effect was mediated through telomere shortness, but by no means 100% of it, far from it. So, so that's the sort of thing that you can ask about genetic situations here. But what about non-genetic situations? And so um, about 10 years ago, one of my colleagues at UCSF, uh, her name is Alyssa Apple, and Alyssa was uh, then a, a postdoctoral fellow, and she came to me, and she came from a very different world, the world of clinical psychology studying long-term physiological effects of chronic psychological stress on people. She said, what happens to telomeres when, uh, you know, when people are under long-term stress? And I said, you know, we don't know, right? And so this began a series of marvelous collaborations within and outside UCSF and with a whole lot of groups of people where now we're asking about what about this particular really rather widespread situation and its impact uh, on uh, telomere maintenance and uh, on uh, diseases. So chronic stress, I'm going to, the kind I'm talking about is, is not, not the kind that most of us whine about where we have a grant application or something like that, but um, it, on, you know, we're, we're stressed out from our exciting jobs. It's the kind of situation, you know, we complain, but we chose it. Now, I think it's very interesting, <laughs> right? And I, I'm not being moralistic here because I'm trying to understand this rather overused word stress. And what was meant in these studies is a very different situation, which I'll just try and capture in certain sorts of things, which is the situation is long drawn out. It's the person has little or no control. They feel over the situation. It's often unpredictable. They feel they do not have resources to cope with it. And, you know, there's a whole lot of things that set it up in a way that is um, you know, often uh, long-lasting and, as I said, quite, quite severe. And in fact, there's a good literature which really links this kind of stress, defined in various ways, and I'm going to give you examples, with very common diseases. And uh, just one example is um, cardiovascular disease, where very robust, large epidemiological studies have linked this kind of uh, chronic stress uh, of that general kind, you know, where things are really seen as threatening and, and so forth for long periods of time with, for example, cardiovascular disease. Okay, so what we found in the first cohort we looked at, which was a cohort of mothers and the controls in which their biological child had a chronic disease of one kind or another, and she was the primary caregiver, and she was under a stress of which she perceived to varying degrees, and for which she had been under the stress for varying numbers of times in this cohort. 
numbers of years in this cohort, sorry, but continuous long-lasting situation. And this has been a well-studied kind of objective stressor. And so what we found was that telomerase in the high-stress individuals was lower than in the low-stress, sorry, was lower than in the low-stress people. So they was dampened telomerase, which would predict less good telomere maintenance. And indeed, very statistically significant shorter telomeres in this group compared with the low-stress people. So that was the first study. And what was particularly interesting was that um, we also found that the number of years the mother had been in this situation after correcting for age and many other parameters was uh, very much related to the shortness of the telomeres. And so that really suggested it was the stress that was causing it, because it was hard to imagine the other way around. What might mediate these effects? So stress comes in the brain, and then there's obviously physiological effects. And uh, one, one good candidate which we're looking at is, is stress hormones, because in the low telomerase group, stress hormone levels were higher than in the high telomerase group. I won't show you the data, but just the same uh, data was for shorter telomere group versus higher telomere group, you know, the same relationship of stress hormones. We know that stress hormones, uh, such as cortisol, damp down telomerase action in immune system cells. And so, so yeah, you know, this is something we can study the pathways of and we're doing. But this is just you know, the observation in, in these individuals. Because the idea was to find out, well, what is actually going on in actual human beings here, quantitatively speaking? Um, and now, we were very reassured when in a completely different cohort, who now were the cohort I mentioned earlier, who are much older women, and they're the primary caregiver for a dementia uh, family member, often their uh, husband, uh, often uh, somebody with Alzheimer's, but by no means that's the only kind of dementia. And so again, a long-term situation fitting those sort of fairly toxic sort of stress situations I mentioned. And so again, we saw this sort of similar kind of relationship of, I didn't show you in this form, but shortness of telomeres was related to perceived stress here. Now, I show you the raw data because I really want to emphasize that there's scatter here. You know, these are real people. There's a lot of complexity here. But the relationships quantitatively are the things that are, you know, are starting to hold out over and over again in these different settings that I'll now go through a bit. So this is the perceived stress situation, which looks at, sort of encapsulate about a month of the situation, uh, sort of uh, questions what is that, what is that month, past month been like. So it's a kind of a sampling. But you can look at other kinds of uh, relationships uh, that relate to stress situations. Uh, many of these such individuals, uh, both with and without the caregiver situation, uh, actually have eating disorders, which is distressed eating patterns. And, um, and this is not caloric restriction, but they attempt to diet. And, and after correcting for BMI and all sorts of other possible confounds, again, we saw a clear relationship between the degree of severity, which is along the x-axis, of this distressed eating pattern by a quite well-established uh, questionnaire sort of scoring system and the telomere length. And I always like to say, you can lie on the questionnaires, but you can't lie about your telomere length. Okay, <laughs> and, and I think that's very important. But it also hides a rather important point, which I am really getting from this, and that is that the perception of the stress is important. It, it is what's happening in the person's mind that is an important parameter, right? And so that's one, uh, this is for the postmenopausal women. We found just the same situation for the um, caregiver mother cohort and their controls as well. Uh, here's another interesting one, pessimism, in which people <laughs> tend over the long term to see potential situations as having threat in them. And so this questionnaire is buried in a whole lot of other questions. Uh, you know, so the, you can't really tell what the intent of the questionnaire is, but the whole idea is to try to, you know, sort of, 
buried in the questions are the pessimism-related ones. The hope is to try to not have people sort of game the system too much. But regardless, you know, again, we saw this sort of relationship. And again, I want to emphasize the scatter here. You know, this is not absolute by any means, but it's statistical, again, again in the same direction. We've looked in a group of, uh, with Owen Wolkowitz and colleagues in the psychiatry department at UCS and looked in a group of people who did and didn't have depression, uh, depression. and then these are relatively young age matched and matched in every other parameter excepting income uh, control and, uh, that you can have. And so this actually is relating to physiological issues and this is the oxidative stress ratio measured by this um, F2 isoprostein vitamin uh, C ratio. And what you see again right across both groups is a relationship between um, uh, their uh, oxidative stress and telomere shortness. And uh, so, so again, we're seeing times with what look like fairly macro sort of physiological settings. Um, and we've seen that, and we saw that kind of relationship in the caregiver mother uh, cohort as well, and, and other cohorts. We've seen this same kind of thing. So the depression didn't make much difference for this. But if you looked at something else about the depression in the depression uh, group of this, uh, and it's a small study, but it was interesting because this was the lifetime duration of their depression that's corrected for age. But what you saw again was this, it's a small n, but it's quite intriguing because it looks like the cumulative effect of stress may be related to the telomere shortness. So this is just a very initial study, but provocative, I would say. Now, another very interesting thing, suggesting there may be long-term effects of, um, of uh, things that happen to people in their lives on telomere maintenance came from this study, which we did with Thomas Nyland and others, uh, uh, in San Francisco and the BA and UCSF. And so basically this is cumulative exposure to traumatic events in childhood. And they categorized it by the number of categories of uh, trauma, that you know, severe things that happened to, in childhood. So if you looked at people with zero or one, there was very little effect on telomere maintenance. And these are now young to middle-aged adults. But people who had more, you started to see a relationship um, right across the entire sample with the people who had more severe uh, uh, trauma exposures. And this has been seen in another completely independent cohort by others too, so it's not just this group. And in fact, um, childhood trauma exposure of this kind is a big risk factor for post-traumatic stress disorder. And so all of these people actually in this cohort, they're all the ones who had the post-traumatic stress disorder. And so uh, now if you just looked at the post-traumatic stress disorder people, you just saw this, the same relationship. So the whole group had had this, um, this is now for the, all the post-traumatic stress disorder people, it was unchanged. So basically, uh, it was in the setting of post-traumatic stress disorder that we were seeing these effects of multiple trauma exposures. And that was simply because in the control group at this point, and we're now expanding the group, we didn't have in you know, the normal population, such exposures are relatively rare, and we didn't have those, but now we'll expand that. So in this combination of settings, post-traumatic stress disorder, for which there's a high risk for um, post-traumatic stress disorder of having large uh, you know, categories of childhood traumas, then you saw this relationship. So again, in adults, you're seeing what may be a somewhat persistent effect. You know, cause and effect is hard to sort out, but here, you know, we're just looking quantitatively. And so this and other kinds of data really think, make us think that there is some causality here, and we, we are seeing this. Uh, and uh, as I said, in multiple sort of cohorts, and this has been seen by others. So now what about the dynamics of telomeres. So everything I've told you is sort of going downhill, right? But in fact, 
the idea of what happens with telomeres had been previously based not on longitudinal studies, but on um, cross-sectional studies. And that's everything I've shown you so far was cross-sectional. And what you saw was if you looked at people over their ages, you saw a general trend down, but with the kind of scatter that I've been showing you in those um, scattergrams uh, for these various cohorts. So there's a lot of scatter, but a general trend down. So people said, oh, your telomeres are inevitably shortening. But was that true? So it was based entirely on these cross-sectional studies. It wasn't true. And in fact, this nice uh, study here exemplifies that not only is it not true, but it might be interesting. So here, this is a cohort that's the MacArthur Aging Study in the Boston area. These were highly functional, high cognitive function people at the beginning, followed out for about 11 years. And their telomere length, just average telomere length, was measured in their white blood cells at the beginning, the baseline, and two and a half years later. Okay? And then we see what happens is that the people who survive, who don't die a cardiovascular disease-related death, are much better uh, in terms of their risk for such death if their telomeres are maintained or even lengthened. And about a third to a quarter of the cohort do this. And then the others whose telomeres shortened in this period, this early period, they have a much higher risk of death. And this kind of thing is starting to show up in another study we've been doing uh, where telomere shortening over a period of time is being clearly related to death uh, in elderly individuals. So in this case, just as one example, but there are now more beginning to emerge. Telomere length change predicted cardiovascular disease mortality. Uh, you know, this is a significant class of mortalities. So can it be shortened? Uh, can the shortening, sorry, be alleviated um, and so these studies are much more at beginning stages, but um, interestingly, factors over which one does have control, such as, um, uh, interestingly, uh, omega-3 fatty acids and of the DHA-EPA subtype, uh, interestingly, were related to telomere shortening. So in a study we did, did with colleagues at the VA and UCSF, what was looked at was um, the degree of telomere shortening over a five-year period in these individuals who had relatively stable uh, coronary artery disease, at least to begin with it was stable. Um, and so they divided into uh, quartiles of their level of omega-3 fatty acids in their um, erythrocytes. And so this is better and better uh, with regard to what's been known in terms of good epidemiological relationships between omega-3 levels and cardiovascular uh, progression and, and risk and so forth. So having more is really well-based uh, in terms of DHA and EPA at least, well based in uh, epidemiological data that says this is you know, better for cardiovascular disease um, risks and situations. And so what happened was that progressively you saw that there was progressively less and less average telomere shortening. So this is the fall going down in the five years uh, with this parameter here. And we're now collaborating with people at Ohio State University doing randomized prospective studies with feeding and placebo to really ask was this causally related to telomere maintenance or not. But this observational study was very strong. And even after correcting for all sorts of different parameters, which have been related various ways to disease risks, or would be confounds, or would be related to telomere shortness, this relationship between omega-3 fatty acid uh, level at baseline, and whether your telomeres grew or not, because in a substantial proportion of people they grew in that five years, so they grew over five years, that um, omega-3 fatty acid level turned out to be uh, you know, a significant quantitative parameter, a predictor of this. 
So the change over five years was predicted by omega-3 fatty acids independent of a lot of other factors. So an interesting things where we can start to isolate certain things, but not to ignore the fact that I'm sure a lot of these things are acting clearly in, in concert, and so combined effects are going to be very critical. Um, so another f situation over which people have control is the degree to which they exercise. And back in the same uh, cohort I mentioned before, interestingly enough, if you looked at the number of minutes of daily exercise that people had, it more and more buffered the effect of stress on telomere shortness. And so uh, as you did more exercise, you could basically wash out the effect of telomere shortness that was uh, associated with stress. And uh, in a completely different cohort, this is now 251 uh, healthy women, we've seen just the same thing in terms of exercise, buffering the effects, this time of childhood maltreatment of the kind that I was telling you about more in the post-traumatic stress disorder in their control studies. And so what we saw is while in sedentary individuals there was a you know, significant effect uh, of the um, of, uh, association of maltreatment with telomere shortness, such an effect in the active group, and this was reasonable, moderate to vigorous activity uh, per day, there was less maltreatment uh, associated telomere shortening. So again, looks like a malleable kind of parameter here. So back to where we, to finish up, you know, where, where are we in, in all of this? Okay. Well, the question had been, did chronic stress affect telomeres? And we think there's now reasonably good data from various cohorts that give us a good sense that this, this arrow is, is real. Now, we also know, as I said, in multiple studies around the world, that short telomeres are related to disease impact of a variety of kinds, which I'm sure there are genetic and environmental and other influence uh, interactions, but we can say, you know, certainly has some non-genetic component as well. So now the question, just as I did for the genetic, uh, you know, common genetic variant question was, uh, you know, how much of it is mediated through telomeres and how much of it is not mediated through telomeres? And I think that now is going to be a very interesting kind of a question because um, what we can do is try to understand this aspect, at least, of the, um, the causality of the uh, disease processes, because I think that way we can get a handle on their, um, uh, you know, on, on uh, various aspects of what might be um, things one can do to um, intervene in, in them. But what we're seeing is this really rather common pattern. And even though the effect sizes are such that they average out over large groups, this is, you know, this is the issue that we have to think about, uh, you know, as we look at populations and human health in general. And uh, perhaps I'll lead in somewhat to our next speaker by, by you know, this concept that we, we want to look at populations and see what sorts of things do impact on, on health and things that, are, um, things that we have some control over, environmental and lifestyle behavioral. We have you know, limited control genetically, but we know there are things that, uh, uh, things that we do have some control potentially over. And the very interesting questions, how does one utilize that information? Because what we see is that these converge on telomeres and their maintenance, and that in turn converges on what we uh, see as risks for you know, a variety of the common age-related diseases. So I'm going to finish with a sort of conceptual thing because I've tried to draw this together, and, and I, I thought of this way of trying to bring all this together. So, so you know, we think we, we go through life, right, and there's a lot of cumulative effects of what goes on in life, but you can sort of think of it as a road that might sort of bifurcate to 
you know, putting us on a road more toward disease risks or a fork of the road more towards health, right? So that, you know, as we sort of go through life, this is more and more what we'll see uh, our lives trending towards. And uh, we know that there can be net telomere loss, and we're seeing there can be uh, the converse telomere upkeep. So what do we know that influences these kinds of things? Well, obviously genes, right? So that's going to be the luck of the draw, you know, choose your parents wisely, right? And, uh, and, then, uh, and then there's going to be things that, uh, and I'll just summarize them very briefly, you know, things we've seen that really do have impact on disease risks and these things we know uh, from cl clinical studies clearly have disease risk uh, implications. And we're seeing they're associated with telomere loss and sorting this out is going to be very important. You know, what is bystander, what is causal, how do we mechanistically understand this? And then the good news sort of is on this side, this fork of the road, we've seen education, and uh, this is in studies that are emerging, but education is starting to emerge as, as a good one <laughs> for telomeres. And exercise, as I've given you a couple of examples, um, and stress reduction, and I haven't shown you those, but there's a few pilot studies that suggest interventions under stress reduction uh, do have this effect. And they're sort of deflecting you into this side of the fork in the road. So we clearly have a, a long way to go, but I think what we're seeing is, is a kind of overall picture where if we step back, it looks as if this uh, long-term maintenance of cells for which telomere maintenance is emerging as quantitatively one factor in humans. It's not the only one, clearly, but it is a factor, it's one we can quantify, and it makes very good mechanistic sense as to what might be going on in terms of the um, underlying mechanisms and etiologies even of some of these long-term chronic diseases, which, which are going to be such a, a big factor um, as we, as we you know, emerge uh, further and further into the century and, and look at the demographics world, worldwide. So, thank you. Elizabeth H. Blackburn, PhD, was one of the 15 illustrious scientists who delivered lectures to a capacity crowd at Yale School of Medicine at a symposium celebrating the school's bicentennial in April 2011.